You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, February 10th, 2022. This is episode number 213. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing? in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 25,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to, re- to support our show. Today we're talking about, talking about Terps, improving equity in cannabis, breaking news that Schumer and company want input on new bill, hint, deschedule or bust, what kind of flower to give on Valentine's Day, tax relief in Humboldt, the cannabinoids of the future, a partial win for a testing lab in the Michigan recall, cannabis moving from industrial to retail centers in San Jose, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis, a veteran in the cannabis industry and always ready to use her experience to guide others. The show wouldn't be what it is today without her expert leadership. What is your headline today, Nicole? Uh, thank you so much for the lovely introduction, Susan. Um, happy Thursday, everyone. My headline's actually coming out of MJ Biz Daily, and this is something that I've been following kind of since the beginning of this problem, which was that large recall in Michigan. A Michigan court case has a partial win for the testing lab in the cannabis recall fight. Um, headline is by MJ Biz Daily staff. Um, a Michigan testing lab scored a partial victory when the state judge affirmed that regulators were wrong to issue the broad cannabis product recall back in November. However, the judge also said that the state authorities acted within the scope of the law. Judge Thomas Cameron of the Michigan Court of Claims wrote an opinion that Michigan Marijuana Regulatory Agency's November recall of the products tested by Veritas Laboratories Bay uh, facility was arbitrary and without basis. 
process and could be equivalent to the substantive due process violation. The threat of irreparable harm to the reputation of the Bay City facility arising out of the recall remains and has largely been left unrebutted, Cameron wrote. The judge ordered that the uh, Marijuana Regulatory Agency, or the MRA, be prohibited from further enforcing the November recall as it permitted, uh, as it pertained to Variad's Bay City Lab. But the judge also gave MRA a partial victory by refusing to agree that the same was true of Veritas Labs in Lansing, which was included in that recall order. Here, the MRA identified te- testing discrepancies that implicated safety concerns, Cameron wrote. That the wisdom of such recall would be could be debated is not enough to survive rational basis review or to establish an equal protection claim. The case is not over, however. According to Veritas Labs uh, news release, the company's attorney intends to pursue further legal claims against the individual Michigan officials in a different court. Um, We continue to pursue all legal remedies so that we can shine a spotlight on the MRA's troubling conduct and improper practices and help ensure massive disruption uh, help ensure the massive disruption and chaos caused by the MRA does not happen again, Veritas attorney David Russell said in a statement. The recall was partially lifted in early December after Veritas filed suit, and later than uh, later that month, another judge refused to reinstate the recall and allowed the cases to proceed. So I think this is actually super interesting. Kind of watch this go down. There were some safety and testing concerns in regards to how the lab's uh, machines were being calibrated and also which machines were being used. Uh, regularly. I know those were some of the things. There was a couple other uh, issues that were in regards to the sampling process. So I'm curious to see how this actually shakes out. I do agree that the broad oversight or the broad reach of shutting down all the facilities didn't necessarily make sense. And in most businesses, that would never happen. Uh, But, you know, here we are in cannabis. So I'm hopeful that the stage or anyone in the audience has some insight on this. I I definitely want to see it as it develops. And I hope that we get to figure out whether or not this was a valid process uh, of the government actually trying to keep consumer safety there, or if this was, um, you know, actually something where the government is drastically overstepping their reach. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. This one's getting extra spicy. Yeah, I mean, Nicole, California doesn't even have any lab standards yet, right? Yeah, that's not true. We have ISO certification requirements. ISO 1700 is actually a standard laboratory requirement, and there's a time frame in which they had to get through the ISOs. Um, So, no, we do have some pretty particular uh, stringent laboratory processes and policies that are already in existence for standard testing protocols. Um, But there is not a uh, consistent in the way that certain types of testing, like there's an example of some people utilize an HPLC or a high-pressure liquid chromatography versus um, a GC, which is a gas chromatograph or gas chromatography. So the difference between uh, mixing it up in a water and separating it and looking at it under the spectrometry, or if you're basically combusting the product and looking at that under the spectroscopy, um, are the two different uh, variables as far as a lot of different uh, chemicals as well as potency that are able to be used. And from what I do understand, the state of California is going to come out with one clear guideline as to what each type of testing actually is done by. Um, but California does have some regulations in the fact that we do require ISO certification. So, so take they, that. They, they certify their alcohol. Is that what you're saying, Nicole? No, not isopropyl certification, Dad. Do they... Um, Somebody told me that they don't test for arsenic. Is that true? Um, Well, arsenic is not 
regularly something that you would be seeing. Like uh, one thing, if you if you get apple juice, um, apple juice often has trace amounts of arsenic. A lot of um, uh, seeds or fruits that are in the apple family um, are actually how they uh, extract arsenic. Um, so there is uh, certain levels of arsenic that are available or allowed to be had in even food products. Um, but arsenic is not traditionally one of the things that um, would ever be an issue as far as products being used. But um, uh, no. And yes, we can test for arsenic, but it is not one of the required on the size. I think it would be a, a big, big deal if they started testing for that, especially with all the fires that we've been having. A lot of, a lot of outdoor companies would go under immediately. Well, if we've got no other comments on Nicole's uh, uh, story, we're going to keep moving. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? All right, so mine's coming out of the Thrillist today and uh, how Talking Terps has influenced cannabis hype culture. So um, the, t- the term lifestyle brand is so broad these days, it can technically be used to describe anything from legacy culture-driven brands like Jungle Boys, Wonder Bread, Cookies, to name a few, um, to mainstream MSO-friendly sourced product newcomers, Candescent, Houseplant, and even Wana. Uh, but how many of these self-described uh, cultural disruptors actually make an impact? As pointed out by Thrillist, only one of them has figurines up on StockX right now. The Talking Terps mascot and highly coveted figurine OG Terp Crawford is found alongside overpriced and resold Air Jordans, Supreme products, and uh, PS5s. The brand's established an authentic cult following transcending mainstream cannabis, and when they drop products, figurines, and accessories, they, they fly off the digital shelves and sell out within seconds. Per the article, on paper, Talking Terps is a cannabis and psychedelic lifestyle brand, but in action... And to their super loyal fan base, it's an alternative universe bringing cultural gaps between toys, cannabis, psychedelics, and pop. I've seen their branding randomly on the local scene, but it wasn't uh, recently until um, um, I went to Puffco's PuffCon out here in downtown uh, L.A. last October and seeing Brooklyn-based hip-hop group Flatbush Zombies perform live. Um, I was able to experience the power of their movement. I was taking shots of Action Bronson with my uh, homeboys from Happy Monkey, and I look into the crowd and I see an ocean of OG Terp Crawford t-shirts, hoodies, and figurines. They're fucking everywhere. Thrillist actually notes that Lior Fate, uh, a.k.a. Hope Lord, Flatbush Zombies member Antonio Lewis, a.k.a. Zombie Juice, and Flatbush Zombies spiritual advisor Phil Anand, a.k.a. PTA Haiti 3000, conceptualized the brand in 2015, and the phrase Talking Terps popped up in a zombie song referring to terpenes in 2016. Lord uh, said that they had a show at Red Rocks in Colorado and a friend was part of the Blue River uh, terpenes crew, brought them their first sample of campaign, uh, excuse me, of cannabis-derived terpenes, and they made a song about it. And the rest is history. 2019, the concept of Terp Crawford was officially born, and now they're deep into the collectible toy game, from plush til- uh, pillows uh, to vinyl sculptures of a joint smoking weed nugs, the brand's meant to embody everything hope, juice, and PTA stand for, which Lord says is, our message is to love each other and to be happy, tread lightly, and disrupt nothing. OG Terp Crawford will soon be a cartoon character as the team's working on 
uh, um, working with Three Hearts Entertainment to develop a TV show around him and the plans to go global, embracing Web3 metaverse concepts and NFTs to take them there. Lord dreams of an oversized cause level sculpture um, at Art Basel and beyond. But it starts with their top secret Metaphorist project uh, that we'll probably be hearing about uh, soon as Web3 cannabis collabs continue to flood the headlines. I joke a lot about metaverse and NFTs here on NewsHour, uh, but really do love hearing and seeing actual execution of legacy brands digitally immortalizing themselves in the process. As we fret about big government and corporate booth taking over all that we hold sacred, uh, the brands that we've come to love for literal generations truly do have an infinite path forward, even if it ain't an IRL. This is Rico Lamite, dopest dad in these LA streets for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Susan and Nicole. I did want to make a correction, Rico. Um, we do test for arsenic in California. It's on the heavy metals panel. It's the fourth on the list. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to say congratulations to Lior. Um, I remember he showed me uh, Talking Terps when he was first coming up with the concept, and I was just like, this is going to be huge. And uh, they've done a phenomenal job with uh, with, with trending it uh, through to, to their base. Yeah, it's excellent branding. I love what they're doing with it. Street culture all the way. It's really, really cool to see them uh, in action with, with the zombies in Action Bronson this uh, this past, uh, was that fall? And it's been a long time. Yeah, he's really creating basically kind of like the supreme of cannabis. Real talk. I love the fact that you can actually immortalize yourself, uh, whether it's digital or not. A lot of, like, we love the culture. We love lifestyle. The, the, the truth of the matter is a lot of lifestyle companies don't have the money to go past this year or next year in federal legalization. They can immortalize themselves and live on forever through NFTs and through the metaverse. So big we've ups got, to them. for. Doing- we've got Talking Turbs up on the stage. You want to Oh, Lord, my in? man. There we go. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, how's it going? Yeah, I, someone told me there was a room that uh, you were talking about Terps. So I figured I'd pop up. Yes, sir. I hit you up on. I, I DM'd you this morning uh, on IG. You want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the the Thrillist article? You got like twenty seconds for us. Um. Yeah. So um, Deontay reached out, and I don't do too much press. I've done. You know, we did our thing with High Times. We had a little. Forbes article by Warren a couple years ago, and I did something with one three seven PM, which is like I think like a Gary V based site. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and what was cool about the Thrillist was that Deontay made you know like I said, yo, let's let's get together in person, and we kind of just kicked it in my workspace for a little while, which I haven't really done with too many people as we were talking about the article. So that was like a cool um, in-person feel. Um, and yeah, I mean, do, do, do you guys have any questions about the article? No, thank you so much for coming up. We were actually just uh, talking about it and we wanted to see if you had any insight in regards to the brand, but it sounds like that's about it. So thank you so much for coming up. Uh, thank you for that headline, Rico. Much um, yeah, and much love, man. Yeah, thank you. Up next, Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section. What do you have for us today, Laura? Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for that, Nicole. Sorry to, to bust in. I think uh, we have a guest in the audience. Uh, Sean 
Callie Rye, who um, may want to join us up on the stage whenever he gets a moment, because he's quoted in the article that we're discussing today, which is cannabis could be coming to San Jose retail centers by Jaina Kada for the San Jose Spotlight. She starts off at San Jose cannabis enthusiasts may be starting the year off on a high. On Wednesday, the Planning Commission approved recommendations to change zoning laws for cannabis retailers that would allow up to 21 new dispensers in commercial locations around the city. 16 are currently allowed. And under the new policy, 37 total cannabis retailers would exist citywide. That's, uh, I think, uh, storefront retailers. The recommendations are expected to go before the city council for consideration next week. They would expand um, dispensaries to locate beyond industrial zones where they're currently limited to operating, reduce certain setback requirements from sensitive uses in the downtown and residential areas, allow existing dispensaries to open second locations, and rezone to allow up to, it says, 1,300 locations for delivery-only dispensaries. I think they mean expand the number of potential real estate to be occupied by delivery-only dispensaries. And then the article also says, which do not currently exist in San Jose, but I, I know for a fact that they, they do. <laughs> um, per the article, the proposal would reserve only 10 of these new licenses for San Jose residents who are qualify as social equity applicants. And only up to five of those may be retail storefronts. Currently, only three of the existing 16 dispensaries are minority-owned, according to this article. Um, The commissioners are also recommending that dispensaries be prohibited from areas where crime rate is 20% or higher. Uh, Lobbyist Sean Calley-Rye, who is the founder of the Silicon Valley Cannabis Alliance and hopefully up on stage now, is quoted in the article um, in support of the expansion uh, due to need. There's also a lobbyist, Richard De La Rosa, um, who represents cannabis business Caniculture, who is quoted in the article as saying, my concern is that the smaller dispensaries won't have the same opportunities as the big guys. Presumably, he says that because maybe the new guys would be the big guys and they would be able to open in the better locations. But that's a, a question for Sean. Sean, are you up on the stage? And yeah, Yes, yeah. I am. Thank you very much Great. for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to hear your perspective on the developments in San Jose. Yeah, you know, so just generally, I mean, I just think more is better. I mean, if you really, if we're a capitalist society, then just let it be free. Right. Just let it be open and let people compete, Um, you know, even for equity. Just let people have more licenses. And so it's been a long time coming. We actually had um, had this conversation in 2019, uh, but then COVID came. And so and, you know, how staff works in some cities, it it got delayed and delayed again. But, um, you know, the market has doubled in size since 2016. So, so San Jose has started January of 2016, and that first year the market was $89 million, the total market size of, of gross sales at cannabis dispensaries. We're looking at about $170 million this year, or pardon me, this last year. And so you're almost seeing a doubling. It's the same number of dispensaries. And um, you, know, you have stores doing anywhere between $3 million a year and 30 to $40 million a year. So I, I don't know that anyone's a mom and pop Anyone that's doing $3 million a year is not necessarily a mom and pop. 
Um, and, and I know Mr. De La Rosa, I know him well. I, I taught him how to be a lobbyist and, and his client's <laughs> certainly not doing $3 million a year. They're doing more. So yeah. I'm not down for the whole, uh, let's continue the monopoly situation type, you know, thing. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no. just I, more is better. I can appreciate that sentiment. So one of the commissioners, uh, Commissioner Young, is quoted in saying that this is really good and that it encourages local ownership of cannabis businesses rather than the large businesses. Can you explain how it might help to keep out, though, the big box MSOs that people are so concerned about? Oh, I've got an Oscar. Yeah we're, yeah, we're at time, so you've got 10 seconds. Sean. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's going to be a challenge. I think everywhere up and down the state, we've seen this being a problem uh, with big MSOs partnering with smaller players. So um, we'll need lots of input. And the council hasn't made its decision until Tuesday. So any input you want to give, you're welcome to give. Good free the free market. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming up, Sean. Thank you so much for taking My time pleasure. today and joining Clubhouse for us. Thank you so much. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. So up next, this cannabis-loving Fresno-based protector of freedoms, never afraid to debate anybody, anytime, Jackie McGowan, Gavin Newsom, line them all up. Former raptivist, representing BIPOC conservative tone, way too often left out of the mainstream conversation. He's here to change the narrative. Up next is the governor himself, Nicholas Wildstar. What you got for us this morning, my man? What's up? What's up, Rico? And good day to you, State of Cannabis crew. My story today is more of the same when it comes to social inequity with cannabis. Fox 17 West Michigan correspondent Julie Dunmire reported on one of the ways they are improving equity in the cannabis industry in Grand Rapids. The so-called war on drugs didn't work. Now, Grand Rapids Director of Equity and Engagement Stacy Stout and her team is working to undo the damage done. It's healing, right? It's righting some of the wrongs that have been done and continue to be done, says Stacy. With the city sponsoring a nonprofit to work on making sure the cannabis industry is fair to anyone who wants to work in it locally or has been victimized by old targeted policies. Inequitable drug policy began in the 1870s with the nation's anti-opiate law targeting Chinese immigrants. Stacy adds, the NGO will officially begin in the next 18 months. This nonprofit is focused on community, the public good, says Stacy. It will benefit the industry, cannabis, and other industries, whether it's expungement assistance so folks have more access to jobs, business incubation, industry can diversify their supplier change. It can be any of the harm. For example, if you have drug convictions, you can't apply for financial aid. But it's a component of the industry the city says should be there, excuse me, funded to start by the local cannabis industry. A lot of the cannabis industry made some equity commitments when they first started. This is one of them, says Stacy. Right now, there is no name, just a year's worth of paperwork to get through before an official nonprofit organization will be there for the city to, in turn, contract out with. This work is probably one of the most important things I've ever contributed to in my career, says Stacy. It's both healing and structural change. It's an attempt to help those unfairly targeted by antiquated drug laws. As we decriminalize and legalize some substances, how do we do this in a humane way, Stacy asks. Um, the next steps, including getting that 501c3 license, 
as well as creating a board to decide the direction of the nonprofit, uh, the nonprofit will go in. The most important thing, Stacy says, is an intentional blueprint to help those harmed by criminal charges for a now decriminalized substance. Reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour, this is Nick Wildstar, aka the Governor. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Right. And we need to we need we need to improve a lot of shit in the, in the cannabis industry. We need to go beyond. Uh, I just keep on saying we got to go beyond the social equity conversation and just talk about fucking reparations at this point. I know our conservative uh, members of our team don't want to talk about that shit, but that's the real conversation that needs to be had because y'all don't give us a motherfucking thing as far I as I don't have a problem talking about reparations, Rico. I talk about reality. I'm talking about what you're going to get, and if you don't want to be like reparations, you, you see, like you, you come from a you come from a place of entitlement and a, a place of you do you do from what what you're saying, like, like you're talking about what's reality. What needs to be reality is reparations. Period. Real talk, Rico. Though, do you so, want to so, be so taxed to get a paycheck? We need to get that you out of jail for? too. Like we can't. We really, really need to be making sure that people are not incarcerated for this fucking plant right now. Like that's a big fucking deal, guys. And just to what Rico is saying, it just goes to issues like expungement and things like that just can't be put on the side. These things for people of color, it's just we're asked to wait and wait and wait. And it's just done, man. People, especially in this industry that we, you know, people like my grandparents and other people gave so much. We're not we're not backing down. It's, it's just going to happen or nobody goes forward. We all go forward together or nobody gets it. Can we get our stolen inheritance back? That's all we're asking for, you know. Yeah, we feel that in the West, man. <laughs> we lost the whole country. We're about, we're about at time. So, uh, Roz, uh, Maggie, and Troy, you've got 10 seconds. Yeah, I, I, I listened to the article, and some of it's a bit concerning. And I think that as new nonprofits come on board and are leading the charge, that we got to also hold ourselves accountable and make sure that we show some measurable outcomes in making um, some of these type of changes happen. So just, there was some things in the article that was a little off, like the, the IRS um, license, um, the 501c3 license, you don't get licensed to get a 501c3. That's the IRS designation. And you have to apply for that and they're not giving it to, you know. So anyways, that's my comment. I agree with Gretchen. The reality is we're not getting reparations anytime soon because we live in America. America. Troy, you've got the last word, then we need to move on. Agreed, a nonprofit owner who got pushed out with 64 because you can't tax a non, uh, nonprofit. Um, it's something else to see them try to shift it to the 501c3, which should be very difficult, which mentioned in the IRS and stuff. But I'm waiting to see because I own a nonprofit. I just basically started working more for the disabled. So it'll be interesting to see. But we do have that. You have to go get that license side, which in our case was a corporate C. So, yeah, it's interesting to see them shift this. All right, let's keep smoking the news. I wish Dr. Kaya was on with uh, her 40 acres and a dispensary conversation on this. But thank you so much for that headline, Nicholas. And we're going to get a second round on Liz Rogan. Liz Rogan, biodynamic biologist, botanist, and cannabis health liaison. What do you have for us today, Liz? Thank you, Nicole. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My story comes from Medical News Today, and the headline reads, Young Cannabis Users at Increased Risk of Repeat Stroke. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, over 48 million people in the United States use cannabis, and around 3 in 10 cannabis users have cannabis use disorder. 
The American Psychiatric Association classifies symptoms of cannabis use disorder as taking large amounts over a long time, spending lots of time obtaining cannabis, wanting to control or cut down its use, failing to fulfill work or school tasks, and withdrawing from social, occupational, or recreational activities. Studies have shown that cannabis use in younger individuals is a risk factor for first-time stroke or transient ischemic attack, TIA, also known as a mini-stroke. A stroke or TIA occurs when the blood supply to the brain is reduced or cut off. It is a life-threatening medical emergency that needs immediate hospitalization. In recent years, the number of strokes has reduced in the United States overall, but in young adults 18 to 45, the rate has increased for 10 to 15%. A recent study from Mercy Catholic Medical Center in Philadelphia has shown young adults with a history of stroke or TIA and cannabis use disorder have a 50% increased risk of recurrent stroke compared to those without cannabis use disorder. This research is currently being presented in New Orleans at the American Stroke Association International Stroke Conference. The scientists use the National Inpatient Sample Database to look at the risk of repeated stroke and TIA in patients with cannabis use disorder. The sample included over 160,000 people ages 18 to 44. They have been in the hospital for any reason between October 2015 and 2017, and their health records indicated a previous stroke or TIA. They found that 6.9% of people with cannabis use disorder were admitted to the hospital for a recurrent stroke compared with 5.4% without cannabis use disorder. Dr. Jane explained that after adjusting for demographic factors and relevant pre-existing medical conditions, people with cannabis use disorder were 48% more likely to have been hospitalized for recurrent stroke than those without it. The study showed young males from low-income neighborhoods were at the highest risk of cannabis use disorder, and hospitals in the northeast and southern regions of the U.S. had the highest rates of recurrent stroke with cannabis use disorder. The study does have certain limitations, including no data on the amount of cannabis that participants used or information about how long they had used cannabis. All of the data comes from a single point in time with no follow-up. Dr. Jane says more research is needed to study the impact of various doses, duration, forms of cannabis abuse and the use of medical cannabis on the occurrence of recurrent strokes. This is pretty serious uh, info, and I'd love to hear if anyone in the audience or correspondence has insight on this. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Wow, thank you. I, I love these studies that replace causation, you know, with correlation or vice versa, I guess. You know, I mean, is there is there any evidence that these people are actually stroking out because of the cannabis use versus maybe they're using cannabis to cope with some additional mental challenges they may have, stressors, um, and, you know, and other factors playing into their lives. It sounds like this is correlation, not causation to me. We've got Michelle up from the audience. Michelle, did you want to weigh in on Liz's headline? Yeah, I just wanted to say that this is all a bunch of bullshit, honestly, because I I was in the hospital with kidney stones and I was begging for them to have access to my medical cannabis. And because of that, I got put that I have cannabis uh, abuse disorder or whatever that is. So they're giving that label out to anybody who talks about cannabis to doctors these days, if you have the wrong doctor, honestly. All right, we've reached the half hour mark, so we're going to quickly relight the room. Tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. 
The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speakers, State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. Up next, she is one of the dopest Midwest mamas, one of the top 25 women in cannabis making history, CEO of award-winning Original Breeders League, 2021 MJ BizCon's coveted Gold Bong Influencer of the Year winner, Priscilla Agoncillo. What you got for us today? Thank you so much, Rico. So my article is Cannabis Users Just Want One Kind of Flower for Valentine's Day. Chocolate, roses, and oysters aren't the ultimate aphrodisiacs after all, a poll finds. Cannabis fans would be happy to skip those traditional symbols of romance and affection, such as candy and flowers for Valentine's Day, and opt for something else instead. So according to a new study from Merimed and Harris Poll, 63% of cannabis fans would rather receive weed than boxes of chocolate or floral arrangements for the upcoming holiday. Uh, 72% they said they plan to incorporate cannabis into their Valentine's Valentine's Day plans, with 53% leaning towards edibles, one of the fastest growing categories in cannabis use. The study, backed by a multi-state operator that recently unleashed a media frenzy around its 850-pound pot brownie, and looks beyond February flirtation celebration and dives into the broader sex lives of cannabis users. Among the findings, weed consumers have more sex and enjoy it more with their non-using counterparts, with 50% saying that they have sex several times or more each week compared to 35% of non-users. Nearly two-thirds, or 63%, of cannabis users believe cannabis enhances their sex life and helps them get into the mood, while 51% say that cannabis is a natural aphrodisiac, and another 30% thinking it's more effective than chocolate or oysters. The results should help smash that lazy stoner stereotype, particularly the data that shows cannabis users have more sex in a week than non-cannabis consumers. They are an active crowd between the sheets and outside of them. The poll gathered responses from 2,000 adult consumers on behalf of Marymed's hot-selling Smash and Passion product, which is made with horny goat weed and other ingredients believed to be natural love stimulants. Another cannabis brand... Delivery platform Ease commissioned its own research for its State of Cannabis 2021 report with 79% of survey participants saying they consume cannabis before sex. So this is Priscilla reporting on some Valentine's Day goodies and definite needs for all couples out there, or even if you're solo, uh, for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Yay, cannabis and sex. Happy Valentine's Day. Very timely, Priscilla. I was going to add, too, there was a product that a local dispensary here in L.A. was is offering. It's a cordial that's made with a, a strain called uh, Pink Boost Goddess, which is this really amazing T- THCV uh, strain out of NorCal from a, a legacy grow up there, Emerald Spirit Botanical. So maybe it's worth a try. Definitely worth a try. Always. I had, I had a doctor back in the beginning of, of, of cannabis that would come to the store and write recommendations. His name was Dr. Garfield, and he was like 80 years old, and he used to tell me he smoked cannabis for his libido. Ew. 
smashing, smashing passion. Hey, eighty-year-old need love too, man. Yeah, no. yeah come on, I was all, okay, okay. Yeah, come on. Why are you hanging on grandma? I'm time. a very visual person. <laughs> Let him get it. Daddy Dank. This is all healthy. <laughs> it's not Daddy, Daddy Dank. That's Grand Grand Daddy Dank. Right. <laughs> the granddaughter of Viagra. Hey, you guys, Jane Fonda said she was having the best sex of her life in her 70s. So come on. With uh, cannabis? She did not go that far, but we should talk to her. Mm-hmm. All right. Before this gets any darker, let's go ahead and hop to our next correspondent. Thank you so much for that headline, Priscilla. Up next, we have Mr. Jason Beck, the longest running retailer in cannabis history, the cannabis industry's very own Kaiser Brose, and probably the highest supporter of the GOP and safe banking that I'll ever let hang out. What do you have for us today, Jason? Oh, yeah. Good morning, Nicole. You sound so excited today. Today, my story comes out. Oh, that's right. Victoria, British Columbia, where the Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club is fined $6.5 million accused of illegally selling cannabis. The Victoria Cannabis Buyers Society and its founder, Ted Smith, have been fined a total of $6.5 million for selling marijuana illegally at the club's Johnson Street location. The fine follows an inspection in May 2019 and two raids at the unlicensed nonprofit dispensary November 2019. And a July 2020, Canada's oldest compassion club has open, openly sold cannabis products since 1996. Its campaign for marijuana law reform resulted in a landmark 2015 decision by the B.C. Supreme Court that allowed oils and edibles to be used as medicine. Smith has long argued that despite legalization, cannabis regulations still don't meet the needs of those who rely on medical cannabis. In January of 2020, Victoria City Council passed a motion supporting the club's request for an exemption from the province's cannabis regulations while it advocates for changes to the rules governing the production and sale of medical cannabis. BC's uh, Community Safety Unit, which is responsible for enforcing cannabis regulations, director Jamie Lipp, and Lipp determined that the retail value of the cannabis seized during the two raids told $168,000.48.44, and that the retail value of the cannabis sold by the society between 2019 and 2020 was $1,449,664.43. This totals $1,617,732. Therefore, I propose to impose an administrative monetary penalty of $3,235,465.74 on the society lip wrote. BC's cannabis regulations state that if a corporation is liable for a fine, a director who authorizes or allows the uh, co- contravention is also liable for that penalty. Lip said he, is all, he has also proposed uh, to find Smith $3,235,465.74. Excuse me, he says, I wanted to have a good idea of how we are going to pr- proceed with this fight because clearly we're not going to pay something like that. Typically, when we've been raided in the past, we've been given the opportunity to fight in court. It was frustrating being raided and not having legal recourse to argue our character rights. So, this is actually going to open the door to those arguments, said Smith. The club is preparing to file several court ap- applications and seeking an injunction. A GoFundMe campaign has been started to raise $50,000 for him to help uh, help the club pay for its legal expenses. And I wish them all the best with this. Um, this is this is a gross overreach when they've already been given local control to as an exemplary um, of the licensure framework. So 
more power to them, and I hope they're successful in their battle. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. That is a hefty fine. If you're going to do something ballsy like that, you need to save your money. All of it. I mean, in, in all fairness, I, I totally understand where, where he's coming from and it's total bullshit because in 2007, the state of California decided that sales tax was going to be charged on cannabis products and then not only charge going forward, but also you were subject retroactively from your date of inception. I've been open in San Francisco since 01 and West Hollywood since 04. And the and the uh, SBOE was coming after me for like $1.8 million in back owed sales tax, which was total bullshit. Yeah, yeah, they came after us too. We got it. We got it whittled way down though on, on the public policy argument. Now, Betty so, was instrumental I, in, in I, that for us. At the end of the Sweetleaf case, um, the owners all got slapped with all of that money as income, and so they're yeah. all facing ten million dollars each in income taxes uh, because they were saying that they were outside of the guise of the regulations for the law, and so the IRS has now slapped them with a ninety-two million dollar income uh, for the year of twenty seventeen. Oh, yeah. Laura, was Betty E helpful, yeah. or did was she? she oh, was good. Awesome. Okay. No, she was such an ally. Yeah, but she's turned around a bit after the accident. I think in the from the legacy industry, this was so much of our concern the entire time was the taxation turning around, and it's happening, and it's it's unfortunate for people who are really trying to do this legally, like Jason and Ted here and okay. everyone. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, part of that can be <laughs> resolved with good tax planning and good tax counsel. Um, I wish Victoria was on, but um, you know, some of it was unavoidable, like Jason's. Um, allocation like the SBOE audit and things like that, those were unavoidable because it was based on guidance that you know wouldn't let us get tax permits at the time. Um, and then to, said, wait, you couldn't have a tax permit, but you were supposed to be paying the tax anyway. Yeah, I told them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> it's the green tax. It's not right. Um, but we're at time, so let's keep smoking the news. Let's. So she's a feisty redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots and an avid supporter of safe banking that never backs down from a debate with cannabis lovers across the aisle. Coming to the stage is next is our, the founder of Panoptic Strategies and the State of Cannabis News Hour's very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us this morning, Gretchen? It's not afternoon either. It is afternoon here on the East Coast, Rico. Uh, good to be here today. My headline is coming from the Hill. Uh, the headline is Schumer asked for input as Democrats finalize cannabis bill. Uh, top Senate Democrats are asking their colleagues for input as they work to finalize cannabis reform legislation with the aim of introducing a bill this spring. Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer, uh, Chairman Ron Wyden and Senator Cory Booker sent a letter to their colleagues to invite them into the drafting process as we work to finalize this legislation. He said, in order to appropriately address such a nuanced issue, we respectfully request the input, advice, and guidance of chairs and ranking members of relevant committees, as well as senators who have dealt with the challenges and realities of legalization in their own states. We would deeply appreciate your willingness to share your expertise on the intersections between your committees, jurisdictions, your state's experiences, and comprehensive cannabis reform, and invite you to join the process of perfecting this legislation. We would welcome the opportunity to discuss this issue with you in the weeks ahead. The letter comes after Schumer indicated during a press conference last week that he was aiming to introduce the legislation as soon as April, 
that would lift the federal prohibition on cannabis and allow state-compliant cannabis businesses to have access to financial services such as bank accounts and loans. As majority leader, I can set priorities. This is a priority for me, Schumer said during his press conference. The three Democrats have been working on a bill for months, including introducing a draft last year. There's broad support for legalizing marijuana. A 2021 Pew Research poll found 60% of respondents support legalizing it for both medical and recreational use, and an additional 31% support legalizing it only for medical purposes. But Democrats face an uphill battle in the Senate where they need GOP support. Letter goes on to say, as more and more states move to legalize cannabis for both adult and medical use, the federal government has an important role to play. Hundreds of millions of American lives in states that have legalized cannabis in some form, while it remains illegal at the federal level. This discrepancy leads to confusion and uncertainty and raises significant questions about criminal justice reform, economic development, and small business growth, and public health and safety, all of which we believe require some type of federal answer. Uh, I think this uh, move by Schumer can be looked on in two different lights. If you're the sweet, naive, wonderful, you know, pot's going to get legalized next week, camp and this says to you, oh, they're trying to work together to figure out the answers and yada, yada, yada. To me, this says Schumer has no idea what to put in his damn bill whatsoever. Uh, and so he's turning to the chairman and ranking members to say, what is palatable to you guys that you might pass this and save me some faith since this is going to fail out flatly. Um, so I think Schumer has no hope. He's reaching out, grasping at straws. Um, and if people do respond and they give him something that he thinks they can work with, uh, that it's only going to hurt the industry because these are going to be uninformed people telling them what they want to see in a cannabis bill. Either way, we're all screwed. This is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. Yeah, Gretchen, I couldn't agree with you more. To me, this is nothing more than a stall tactic for the ultimate inevitable of this bill basically going nowhere. I got to agree with both of y'all um, on this one. Uh, Chuck Schumer and uh, Cory Booker, like who's, who's, who's been silent a lot lately. Uh, they're not really saying shit. And without the support of your fearless leader, Joseph Rob, Robinette Biden, what conversation we Gretchen, what's the best way for us to get our just man on the street input to them? And then I want to hear from Elliot. People need to reach out to their lawmakers and they need to reach out to Schumer and Wyden and Booker's office. I mean, honestly, if you have financial concern, I would go to Wyden because, frankly, I think he is the most measured and most pragmatist of actually getting something done. Ron Uh, Wyden is fucking great. Okay. (laughs) Cory Booker, um, I think his heart is in the right place. Chuck Schumer is just looking at a, a PR stunt. Chuck Schumer has no care for cannabis whatsoever. He's just worried about this year's election. So Chuck's the last guy you should be turned into. Elliot, Elliot Lewis gets the last word on this headline. Yeah, I don't want it if it comes with a bunch of taxes. I'll keep it simple. The last one I saw that they came up with was the dumbest shit I ever saw. It will make the California industry even more on the verge of extinct. I'd say keep the bill unless you could figure out it needs to come with no taxes, but they're way too stupid. And, and Susan, I just want to add, I think part of this is coming from the negative feedback. They got so much negative feedback on their draft from the industry. They really don't know where That's to go. That's what Democrats are good at is overtaxing and under-delivering. 
Wow. It's very simple. Deschedule or bust. Yeah, deschedule or bust. All right. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Gretchen. We're going to go ahead and hop to our next correspondent, Eric Hislereda, award-winning journalist, brand-building content ninja, freedom-fighting farmer's friend, or F4. What do you have for us today, Eric? Hey, Nicole. Thank you for that intro. And hey, everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from the Beard Brothers blog, and it's Cannabinoids of the Future, CBDA and THCA. Uh, most of you probably heard the buzz the last couple of years about the acid forms of the most famous cannabinoids, namely THCA and CBDA. But the interesting thing is these compounds are attracting a lot of attention, not for the buzz per se, but also uh, their other potential. So the article opens up with the question, what is THCA? So tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, or THCA, is the prodrug of the famed Delta-9 THC molecule in cannabis. It descends directly from CBGA, and once heated excessively, a a carboxyl group leaves the molecule and THC is born. If you're buying cannabis flowers, the potency is generally measured through a batch scan of THCA. It makes up to 90% of the total THC content in the raw plant. And while it decays quickly, uh, researchers have good reason to preserve it as it stands um, because more than just THC powder, it exists in various uh, cannabis uh, dispensary markets. So people want to know, will it get you high? Uh, The answer is no. However, since THC is a highly unstable molecule, there will be remnants of the molecule that convert to THC so it could show up in a drug test. I'm just going to add an aside that I had a THCA tincture about five or six years ago and it definitely uh, elevated me. So I think there's some discussion there and I've done some research that some people metabolize it in a way that will get you elevated. Um, Back to the article, um, some of the potential uses identified in the article include a neuroprotectant and anti-inflammatory, like two preliminary studies with Parkinson's disease and Huntington's disease in rat cell lines have shown real promise, a liver and anti-inflammatory, and endocannabinoid tone. Um, Your endocannabinoid system needs to be in balance with itself. Otherwise, whatever is regulated by it, like sleep, mood, and appetite amongst them, will suffer. In one study, uh, THC was shown uh, the ability to inhibit enzymes that would otherwise remove endocannabinoids from the system, um, thereby enhancing what is called the endocannabinoid tone. Um, Next up in the article is what is CBDA? um, Rico, I wasn't sure, uh, is Brian here? Because I was going to let him roll from here if he's available. I did not hear back from him. I think he's probably up in the up in the mountains. Um, he's always up in the mountains, up in uh, um, um, Nevada County. Yeah. But he'd be an excellent resource. I hit him up late last night. No worries, early man. This morning. I, I, can, I can roll with it. But anyway, Brian was a writer of the article, but uh, we maybe were going to have him. But we'll just keep rolling. So the next part is what is CBDA and what THCA is to cannabis. Uh, CBDA is to hemp or uh, non. Uh, you know what. Minus 0.3. Anyway, so yet even as less known and fewer studies have been done on it than THC itself, uh, because of its um, acidic component, it is even less to do with the endocannabinoid system as we know it. But similar to THCA, it is also highly unstable, which further complicates uh, being studied. Still, once researchers have run CBD through its paces, they may have a few other unique uh, uniques to explore with its elder relative. And its uh, potential uses include cannabinoid tone, uh, similar to THCA, CBDA also inhibits the ECS disposal enzymes, meaning it could have a role in strengthening ECS tone as well. It's also an antiemetic. In combination with THC, CBDA proved to be a strong antiemetic in animal models. 
And anti-anxiety, according to one C, uh, according to one study, CBDA shows a greater affinity for the 5-HT1A receptor than even CBD, suggesting a role for the molecule as a future anxiety treatment. Also, hey, for Eric, as Eric, yeah, Eric, real quickly, uh, Brian said he's hopped in. Oh, cool. Right on. Well, I'm going to let the writer of the article finish this up, so maybe he could talk about some of the other properties as well. Okay, Brian, can you raise your hand? Yeah, I don't see it. I see him. I see him right here. Also, I was just a little confused. I wanted to make a comment before Brian gets up. The CBDA is to hemp. That is just not the real statement. Hemp and cannabis are the same plant. CBDA also found regular cannabis. So this article does have a little bit of a a misinformation there. Is Brian Brian with us? Uh, he's been invited up, but hasn't having a problem or something. Hasn't accepted the invitation. Yes, mild bro so. science. I would have to say, Rico, not let's, fairly wrong, but mild bro. Let's. Oh, there, Brian. <laughs> Brian, you've got ten seconds. We're at time on this headline. Excuse me. I said we're at time on this headline, so you've got ten seconds to weigh in. It's your headline. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I, I just I just turned my phone on. I just got in from a hike. I'm unclear oh, what's going on, on. yeah i'm com- i'm completely like so we're on the- uh, <laughs> unclear of what's happening right now okay. so we're rico, just, rico has my personal number and he texted me just to join this link and i'm uh if you could just give me yeah. a little bit of clarity what's happening i'm trying to do that right now so yeah. we're on the news uh we do a four minute and 20 seconds uh on each story we just covered your story eric hislareda covered it the one that was just on beard bros and he was talking about the cbda and the thca and as you came on i was saying hey this part about cbda being to hemp as what thca is to cannabis is a slight misnomer because in fact it's the same plant and cbda is also found in regular cannabis as well but then we invited you up if you wanted to give us a little bit of insight awesome if not great article and we're really thankful for it and eric did a great job yeah okay so yeah the bearded bros have been covering uh the terpene uh research that my team and i have been doing at medicine box there's a series of eight terpenes i believe and a series of six cannabinoids um which one did uh eric cover this week on thca and what they were and thca and cbda yeah that's what we were talking about yeah Cool. All right. Yeah. So, um, I'm don't really have time to weigh in on the details of the article, but I can just give you a little bit of high level. Um, we've been researching, uh, terpenes and cannabinoids and other compounds, um, in the love, uh, plants. Love, love, love you, brother, Brian. I, I love what you do. Thank you for coming up. Sorry yeah. Thanks. <laughs> we'll see you next time. G. Keep smoking the news. All right, Les. So she is a pot smoking PhD, and <laughs> <laughs> just go medical imagine. Medical imagine this Thursday. <laughs> Please come to the stage. Hi, Rico. Thank you so much. Um, good morning, everyone. So I'm coming to you from Humboldt County in the Emerald Triangle, and reporting from the Redheaded Black Belt and the North Coast Journal supplemented with my own research. So here's what's going on in Humboldt. This is about cannabis tax relief. Following strong grassroots organizing by farmers and advocacy organizations, shout out to the Origins Council and Humboldt County Growers Alliance, Humboldt cannabis farmers will get some tax relief in 2022. The Board of Supervisors voted three to one with one supervisor recused 
to approve an extension and a temporary tax reduction. So if you can click the pinned link, I just want you to see this picture because it's priceless. It's a photo of a protest sign that says, this sucks. And that's from a recent rally um, that was a part of uh, contributing to this outcome, which I'm about to tell you. So here's what the board decided. Humboldt cannabis cultivators will get two forms of tax relief from county government. First, farmers who are delinquent on the tax payments that were due in October of 2021 will have more time without late payment penalties. About 80% of the smaller permitted farms have already paid the tax, so the extension won't impact them, but the four largest farms have not yet. Interesting side note. <clears throat> Here's the second piece. 2022 Measure S taxes will be reduced by 85%. That means farmers will owe 15% of the usual county cultivation tax of $1, $2, or $3 per square foot on outdoor mixed light and indoor, respectively. So this will help farmers for the 2022 tax year when every dollar counts. But as you've heard on this show before, a crash in wholesale prices has put farmers on the brink of insolvency, wondering whether to plant this year. So here's some back-of-the-napkin math to show why county tax relief is helpful for farmers to stay afloat, but why state-level tax reform must follow for farmers to be able to make a decent living. If you have a 10K outdoor license that yields 500 pounds, you'd normally pay 10,000 to the county and roughly 80,000 to the state. That's 60% earmarked for cultivation taxes alone, assuming you sell for 300 a pound. What's left is not enough for other business expenses or the farmer's own living expenses unless wholesale prices are much higher than they were last year. The county's decision does provide one year of relief, but the state cultivation tax is still in place and increasing. As a result, farmers are making hard choices about whether it makes financial sense to continue growing within an oppressive tax regime. Zooming out for just a second, both the county and state have cannabis tax beneficiaries, and those beneficiaries... Oh, I'm getting the Oscar music. Sorry. All right. On timeline. <laughs> really sorry. We got to get to Brandon's story. Thank you so much. We will follow up on that. Definitely something we want to make sure that we get into. But Brandon Dorsky, CEO at Fruit Slabs and Cannabis IP Attorney. What do you have for us, Brandon? Thanks for having me. My headlines, Missouri justices say winning pot license applications are public. That's right. Missouri Supreme Court ruled that regulators must disclose and make available the successful applications of businesses that secured licenses in an effort to make their medical marijuana program more transparent. The decision was unanimous and repudiated the Department of Health and Senior Services arguments that they were supposed to be kept confidential. The Supreme Court rejected applicants. The case had found itself to Missouri Supreme Court because Kings Garden Midwest LLC had sought to appeal the rejection of their two cultivation licenses and wanted successful applications to compare theirs to. Judge George W. Draper III wrote, because applications are not judged solely on their own merits, but are ranked competitively against other applications, the only way to determine whether the Department of Health and Senior Services denied King's Garden's applications in an arbitrary or capricious manager, manner is to compare its applications against uh, information from those of successful applicants. The decision further stated no meaningful review of their decision can occur without access to successful applications. DHSS had argued an amendment that legalized medical marijuana in Missouri required the regulators to protect the confidential information. The court did acknowledge that the amendment required confidentiality, but allows the confidential information to be used for purposes of appealing the DHSS decisions. The director of DHSS claimed to project that complying with the order will only demonstrate the applications were consistently scored. But... If that was the case, why were they resisting their disclosure? In a similar case out of Pennsylvania, their Supreme Court also ruled that the public had a right to review applications for the coveted marijuana licenses. This is great news. It means that if your application has not passed, you may be able to see why it didn't because you can look at successful applications. This also likely means that lawyers that charge tremendous amounts of money to 
create these applications are going to be a little bit exposed because some of that information is going to be publicly available. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I think this is the right decision and it's hugely important. I mean, it does expose some trade secrets potentially of the applicants, but I think you know you could fight to keep those limited aspects confidential. But this is the right decision. It's just going to give everybody the ability to copy and paste and submit their own applications now. They do it already. I mean, yeah. some some jurisdictions just put the applications online. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, we've reached the, the top of the hour. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show, anywhere you get your podcast or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. If the people say goodbye, Rico. Are you gone already? I ain't never gone. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>